Well, this morning, I'm going to start with a phrase that is going to strike fear into the hearts of every youth student because they've heard it so many times, but we have a lot to get through and not nearly enough time to get through it this morning, so we are going to jump right in. So if, uh, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, I would ask you to open this morning to Jonah, where we are going to spend our time in Jonah chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I was thinking this last week, over the past months I've been spending time in a, a book that many of you are probably very familiar with, and it's a, a book that came out in September of 1937. And it was maybe not known that it was going to uh, cause such a stir or be as good as it was, but it set one of the world's largest franchises in motion. And that book was The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. It's a book that contains one of the most masterfully told tales, a, a story full of treasure, of elves, wizards, dragons, and... Of course, since it has hobbits, it's full of good food and naps. And often it's been deemed that this is a story of one of the most unexpected adventures. An unsuspecting, mild-mannered, comfort-loving hobbit named Bilbo Baggins, who would certainly never want to leave the comfort of his little hobbit home in Hobbiton, he embarks on a treasure-hunting mission with a ragtag group of dwarves. This truly is an unexpected journey. And this morning, we ourselves actually have an opportunity to embark on an unexpected journey. As we dive deep into the pages in the coming weeks of the story of the prophet Jonah, an unexpected story about a prophet of the one true God who is called to take a vital message of salvation to a people group that are in great need. This also is a tale filled with twists and turns of disobedience, of storms out upon the sea, of giant fish, evangelism, and even restoration. And throughout the duration of our time on this great journey, we're going to begin to realize that there is a theme that is woven throughout every single verse, every single chapter. And that theme is going to be one of evangelism and the sovereignty of God. And both of which we are going to see are clearly juxtaposed by the stubbornness of mankind. And so this summer, that is exactly why I think we need to spend time in the book of Jonah. Because each of us, whether or not we want to admit it, sees a little bit of Jonah in ourselves. A desire to do what we want rather than to do what the Lord has called us to do. A desire to run in fear when the Lord has called us to go in faith. And this will be on full display this morning as we spend time in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. 
There we will see Jonah's attempt to flee from the presence of the Lord. And then we will see the Lord who is gracious, who is loving, who is merciful and sovereign still eventually calls Jonah back to himself. Throughout these first 16 verses, we will be convinced that God's faithfulness is greater even than our sinfulness. And I pray that this point would be solidified within our hearts today as we learn from the story of Jonah and specifically as we look at two characteristics of disobedience to the Lord. Let's start our time this morning by reading Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into the ship to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country, and what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that the great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased 
from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. First, this morning, as we look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we're going to see that disobedience to the Lord, it reveals a sinful heart. Our story begins just like the story of Bilbo Baggins in perhaps one of the most unexpected ways, with a simple response to the Lord from a man who is clearly identified as a prophet. In verse 1, the identity of Jonah is made clear in that phrase, the word of the Lord came to. This is a phrase that is often used to indicate the exact words of the Lord coming to a faithful prophet. In fact, it's used that way over a thousand times in God's word. So this phrase, the word of the Lord came to, not only identifies Jonah immediately as a prophet, but also this this phrase is meant to bring to mind the line of faithful men who have come before Jonah. The line of faithful men who have heard the commands of the Lord and then obeyed them completely. Specifically, perhaps the words would come to our minds of the predecessor of Jonah, about Elijah. In 1 Kings 17, we see in verses 2 through 5, the Lord told Elijah to leave this place and go east to Cherith Brook. Later on, it then says, Elijah obeyed the Lord's command. Then in verses 8 through 10, the word of the Lord came to him, still speaking of Elijah, saying, Arise and go to Zarephath. And then later, once again, Elijah rose and went to Zarephath. He rose and he was obedient to the Lord's calling. Before even getting past this opening verse, the audience is meant to assume that Jonah, son of Amittai from the land of Gath-Hefer, is going to be yet another obedient prophet. But that is not the story we are told. Rather, what is revealed in the following two verses is the disobedience of one who is meant to bring a message of salvation on behalf of the Lord. Jonah is given a clear command from Yahweh. He is told first, go to Nineveh, very clearly. And then second, cry out against it. Or simply put, go to where I have told you to go and do what I have told you to do. That is what the Lord has called Jonah to. Once again, even in the way the Lord presents this command to Jonah, we could be taken back to perhaps another man who received a command from the Lord and was at first hesitant but then obeyed. I think of Moses in Exodus 3 and 4, where in 3, 8 through 10, the Lord promises Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh and you will bring Israel out of Egypt. He has said clearly what Moses is to do and what will then take place. In the following verse, Moses 
says, who am I that I should do this? He doubts that he is qualified or that he can speak truly on behalf of the Lord. But then finally in Exodus chapter 4, verse 20, we are told Moses took his family to the land of Egypt, showing that he was being obedient to God. Moses shows this initial hesitation. He doesn't want to return to the land in which he grew up. Doesn't the Lord remember that Moses murdered somebody there? Doesn't the Lord know how hard this is going to be? Moses can't speak well. Doesn't the Lord know? But eventually, Moses responds in obedience and submission to the Lord by taking his family with him to Egypt and doing all that the Lord has asked him to do. By standing before Pharaoh, proclaiming the goodness of God, the judgment against Pharaoh, and then eventually taking the Israelites out of the land of Egypt and leading them to the promised land. But this is not the case for Jonah. Jonah rejects Yahweh's clear command. He does absolutely everything he can to get away from the presence of the Lord. We see that Jonah rose up Just like many other times, a faithful prophet rose up to do the will of the Lord. Now Jonah rose up to flee. Jonah rose up to flee. Literally, the text says, Jonah rose to flee from the face of Yahweh. Even though, as a prophet, Jonah likely would have been taught in the ways of the Lord from a young age, and he certainly would have known the poetic literature such as Psalm 139, 7 through 10, which would have reminded him, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, there you will be. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, Your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Jonah would have surely known of the omnipresence of Yahweh, the truth that Yahweh is everywhere at all times. But even so, Jonah is blinded by sinfulness. And he foolishly thinks Perhaps if I flee to Tarshish, to that place where the Lord has not yet fully revealed himself to the people, perhaps there I will escape the presence of the Lord. And so after Jonah arose, after he concocted this perfect plan of escape, his flight began. He goes to the port of Joppa, where he found a vessel, went down into the vessel, And waited for it to cast off from the shore. And he did so so that he could finally be rid of the presence of the Lord. Jonah was so committed to doing the exact opposite of what the Lord had called him to do. It's hardly believable. Nineveh had been approximately 550 miles northeast of Joppa. And instead... Jonah starts to head 2,500 miles northwest. 
to Tarshish. God calls Jonah to turn east, but instead he flees west. Do we get the idea yet that Jonah is doing every single thing in his power to not do what the Lord has called him to do? I wonder this morning how many of us do the exact same thing. Jonah keeps going down, 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 and is now on a ship headed as far west as he can go. But why is it? Why is it that Jonah is so keen on running from the presence of the Lord? Why is it that this man who we learn about in 2 Kings 14, 23 through 27, this, this man who was a faithful servant of the Lord, why is it that he's now acting so rebellious? It is because of who the Lord had commanded Jonah to go to and proclaim his message to. And Jonah, in the stubbornness and in the sinfulness of his heart, didn't want to do that. We see this confirmed later for us in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, where Jonah, when speaking of the mercy that God has shown Nineveh, he says, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah because he knew the character of the Lord, knew exactly what the Lord had planned for Nineveh. Jonah knew if I were to go and proclaim Yahweh's message, surely they would repent and he would relent and not send disaster upon them. And Jonah, Jonah wouldn't dare be part of this. He couldn't dare believe that God would ask him to be the one to bring this message of salvation to Nineveh, to these Gentile dogs. They didn't deserve grace. They didn't deserve God's mercy. They were evil beyond belief. Didn't God remember all of the evil they had perpetrated against his people? That they were home to some of the largest enemies of the Lord. That Nineveh was the prime example of self-exaltation and anti-God power. And didn't God understand what this would do to Jonah's reputation? Jonah had been a faithful prophet of the people of God. And now he would be the one responsible for bringing the news of the one true king to this Gentile scum. What would people think of him? These were likely the thoughts and the questions going through the mind and heart of Jonah when he heard this direct command from Yahweh and he chose instead to flee from them. In reflecting on these three verses, uh, author and theologian Sinclair Ferguson has such a profound statement that I'll say a couple times, and if you can, write it down. It is so important. He says, It has been well said that our problem in obeying God is not that we do not understand what he is saying, but that we do. 
It has been well said that our problem in obeying God is not that we do not understand what he is saying, but that we do. This quote perfectly sums up what is taking place in these first three verses. The will of the Lord did not line up with Jonah's desires. And as a result, Jonah wanted nothing to do with the plan that the Lord had concocted. In other words, Jonah's revealing response of disobedience made clear the very state of his heart. And it is clear here that his heart was disobedient, sinful, and rebellious. Not only does this reflection from Sinclair Ferguson capture the heart of Jonah, but I would dare to say it actually often captures our very own heart. How many of the responsibilities that the Lord has given us in love do we shirk because they don't line up with our desires? What about evangelism? When Matthew 5.16 tells us to let our light shine before men. Or what about living in harmony? Confessing, repenting, turning from sin as we're told to do in Matthew 5.23 and 24. Or what about this laundry list of other items? Praying not only for those you love, but for those who are your enemies. Not judging unjustly not fearing man, forgiving others, loving your neighbor, being baptized after you have been saved, and being on guard against greed. Friends, how often do we refuse to share the gospel message with another person because we don't know how they're going to respond? Or maybe how often do we catch ourselves saying, how can I live in harmony with everyone when so many people are so Annoying. How can I do that? Today, I want to suggest to each of us that our willingness to submit to the will of God often speaks loudly about the condition of our hearts. This morning when I began, I mentioned that this book is relevant to us because each one of us has a little Jonah in us. When the will of God comes head to head with our own desires, often our personal comfort wins out. So from the life of Jonah, we see the first characteristic of disobedience to the Lord is that it reveals a sinful heart. Second, Jonah chapter 1 verses 4 through 16 shows us that disobedience to the Lord brings necessary correction. Disobedience to the Lord brings necessary correction. Or perhaps another way to say this would be simply that sin has consequences. What we will see in the final 13 verses this morning is that the Lord actually uses the event of Jonah's disobedience to bring correction to numerous parties to Jonah, and then also to the sailors on whose ship Jonah is voyaging. As the story continues, the scene changes, and we go from the shores of Joppa to the ship on the Mediterranean. 
It is here that Jonah's flight presses on as he makes this 2,500-mile voyage to Tarshish. Even though Jonah has done just about everything in his power to evade the presence of the Lord, it's made very clear, very quickly, that God is not done with this man yet. The Lord sends or hurls a great storm against this ship that is bound for Tarshish. This ship that is carrying a wayward prophet. And this is not your average storm. This is the storm of all storms. And that's seen very clearly in the way that these sailors respond. These veteran, sea-tested sailors are seeing this divinely appointed storm, and they are shaking where they stand. They are terrified. And just as the true nature of Jonah's heart was revealed in his response to the command of the Lord, so too the true nature of the sailors' hearts are revealed in the presence of this great storm. And this is going to be actually shown in their two responses to this great storm, as seen in verse 5. We see first that the sailors responded with idolatry. These sailors, very similar to those polytheistic Athenians, the ones who we learn of in Acts 17, who prayed to so many gods that they even had an altar to an unnamed god, these sailors similarly start heaping up prayers to any god that can come to their mind. They just hope that they can say the name of the right god who has cast upon them this misfortune so that that God might be appeased. And then second, they respond with human effort. These seasoned sailors realize the dire situation that they are in. And they still look to their own strength to try and change it. They start heaving the cargo overboard, making the ship as light as possible. In fact, in in relaying this thought, the author actually uses personification in verse 4 to say that the ship expected itself to crack up. The storm was so great, even the ship expected itself to be destroyed. The sailors have tried everything that they can think of. False religion hasn't worked. Human effort hasn't worked. And they're left with one question. What do we do? And as this situation above deck is unfolding, we ask ourselves that natural question of, where's Jonah? Where is this fleeing prophet? We see from verses 5 and 6, Jonah is found sleeping below in the hold of the ship. In fact, though many of us think that Jonah's been down there the whole time, it actually seems more likely, based off of the Hebrew here, that Jonah may have seen the storm, and then fled below deck in response. He saw the storm, and in one last-ditch effort to get as far away from the presence of the Lord, he goes below deck, and he goes into a deep, sweet sleep. Perhaps the only place he could escape 
the panging of his conscience from the Lord. So Jonah has gone below deck. He has fallen into such a deep slumber that even the storm cannot wake him. And in fact, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in the Septuagint, it's interesting to note here, it's suggested that the captain may have only found Jonah because he was snoring so loudly. Think how loud that must have been in the middle of this storm. But even so, this deep sleep could not save Jonah from the presence of Yahweh. Jonah is awoken by a set of words that have reminded him yet again that he couldn't escape Yahweh's presence. Verse 6, it says, Get up, call on your God, says the captain. This captain who has simply descended into the hold of the ship to wake this man, to tell him to cry out to the gods and to throw more cargo overboard has become a part of the Lord's divinely appointed plan. Jonah is reminded yet again how he has abandoned his responsibilities. By saying, get up, call on your God, the captain has used the exact same words that the Lord used with Jonah in verse 2. Kum kara, or arise, call out. First it was arise, call out against Nineveh. Now it is arise, call out to your God. What dread Jonah must have felt as he heard these words once again. But then the, the scene quickly changes once again back to the deck where the storm is still raging. And there it is the sailors who are trying to find the answer to the question that Jonah actually knows the answer to. Whose fault is this anyways? Who has brought this storm upon us? Quickly the lots are cast and Guilt is determined. Once again, the sovereignty of God is on display. And it's even on display now as the sailors ask Jonah five pointed questions. They ask Jonah, whose responsibility is this? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And from what people are you? These are the five pointed questions given by the sailors. And we actually know that they have an impact on the very heart of Jonah because of how he responds. Though asked five questions, Jonah only responds to four. He addresses his liability. He addresses his nationality, including the country and people he has come from. And he addresses his religion. But one answer is missing. Jonah, what is your occupation? What is Jonah's occupation? What was he now to say to these sailors whose lives are in danger, who looked at him with fear and anger in their eyes? Before, this man had been a faithful servant to the Lord. And now, what? What is he supposed to say? He's a deserter? A rebel? A disobedient sinner? 
what is he going to say to them? It is as if here, in this moment, the fullness of Jonah's rebellion has caught up with him. And we see that his guilt before the Lord now weighs heavily upon his mind and upon his heart. Jonah then also terrifies the sailors a step further when in verse 10 they recognize who Jonah is running from. He's running away from the one supreme God. This is the God that the sailors likely would have even heard about. Isn't this the one who destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? Isn't this the very God who crushed the army of Pharaoh under the weight of the Red Sea? This was the one from whom Jonah was running. And this was the one whose judgment had now fallen not only on Jonah, but also upon the sailors. And standing there in awe and in fear, the sailors say, what do we do? What are we to do? Jonah now, having seemingly come to terms with the judgment he must face, simply says, pick me up, throw me into the sea. Just as a storm was hurled upon this ship, he says, hurl me into the sea and the storm will subside. Jonah has accepted his fate, the cost for his disobedient action. But, but it seems that the sailors have not. It says they don't want to be held guilty before the God for a senseless murder of this man. And so in all their might, they row and row, trying to make their way to the shore. And even though they as sailors would have known in, in the midst of this great, this great storm that the sea was actually safer than if they made it to the harbor, that didn't matter. They work as hard as they can, pushing themselves to absolute exhaustion, this brink of collapsing. They have done and are still doing everything in their own power to get away from this raging storm. But then finally, in verse 14, at the pinnacle of this first chapter, we see the sailors, unlike Jonah, finally submit to the Lord. The verse says, Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord have done as you have pleased. The sailors address what is again one of the major themes in this entire story of Jonah's life. Finally, they stop trying to save themselves by their own works and they cry out to God asking that they would not be held accountable for the life of this man because they finally recognize you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. They readily confess that Yahweh is sovereign. He is truly the one who has brought this great storm upon them and the only one who can take it away. And now it seems that they understand the only way to appease God seems to be to cast Jonah overboard. 
over into the sea. And so that is exactly what they do. They pick up Jonah and they hurl him into the sea. The sea stops raging immediately. But then in one final scene this morning, our attention is not upon Jonah because he's seemingly left our line of sight. But our focus is actually upon something beautiful that's taking place on the ship. These heathens, just a while ago, along with Jonah, were under Yahweh's heavy hand of judgment. They were under the hand because of their idolatry and lives lived in defiance, where Jonah was under judgment because of his disobedience. But now it seems that the grace of the Lord is extended to these sailors. While Jonah is floundering there in the water, fighting for his life, salvation seems to have come to these sailors who no doubt once had hard hearts. Now they truly feared the Lord and responded to the work of the Lord by offering him great sacrifices and vows. I must say, is this not perhaps one of the most ironic ways that this chapter could come to a close? We realize it hasn't been long since Jonah was running from the Lord because the Lord wanted Jonah to go to a Gentile people and proclaim his word and show his glory. But still, even in Jonah's disobedience, the Lord has shown his sovereignty. And it seems that salvation has come to these Gentiles here on the ship and will still, spoiler alert, come to the Ninevites later. Jonah, in disobedience, fled from the Lord, but the Lord and his sovereignty brought glory to his name and is going to continue to do so as we see in the rest of Jonah. In many ways, the Lord has treated Jonah and these sailors as a parent would treat their child. So for all of those parents out there, what's one of the most common examples of when you tell your, t- your child, dear precious one, do not do this. And then they do it anyways. And then they understand why you said don't do that. Usually the example we think of is the hot stove top, Right. The example where the parents in the kitchen, they're cooking, and they say, Sweetie, my dearest, don't touch the stove. It's hot, and it will burn you. And the child, although they know conceptually that is probably the case, something still draws them to that stovetop, and they touch it, and in their great surprise, it's hot. Right? They pull their hands away And immediately, their hand is scalded. And later, after, of course, the parent has made sure the child is okay, the child is then scolded by the parents for what they have done, which they should not have done. For every disobedient action, there is going to be a consequence or correction that takes place. That is something that Jonah, as a servant of the Lord, must have known. And we as followers of the one true king must not only know conceptually, but believe wholeheartedly. Though our disobedience to the Lord may not end with us being hurled from the bow of a ship, our disobedience will carry consequences. 
The one who cheats on their taxes should not be surprised when they get a jail sentence. The football player who intentionally deflates footballs should not be confused when it leads to a full investigation and a suspension. The one who slanders their neighbor should not be aghast when it leads to fractured relationships. The one who acts sinfully certainly is deserving of consequences and correction which ultimately hand from, come from the sovereign hand of our Lord. So the second characteristic of disobedience to the Lord is that it brings necessary correction. As we spend just one or two more minutes ending our time here together this morning, we must not only come to the realization that disobedience to the Lord reveals a sinful heart and brings necessary correction, but we must also recognize something that I have not yet mentioned is that when we read the recounting of Jonah, it is not only a historical account of what has taken place, but when we read this, it beckons us to look forward to what Christ would do and what he has now done. Jonah received an explicit commission from the Lord to take a message of salvation to Nineveh. He rejected that in disobedience and fled. But Christ willingly left perfect union with the Father and the Spirit. He emptied himself, becoming both truly God and truly man, to come to earth and live a life that was perfectly characterized by obedience. Jonah, while surrounded by a a storm, descended to the depths of the ship, into a deep sleep to get as far away from the presence of the Lord as possible. But Jesus, resting in the full power of the Lord and in full obedience to him, was able to sleep while he and the disciples were in a boat in a storm. And when he was awoken, he stood and with a word told the storm to cease, the waters to be still. Jonah, in a sense, here saved the sailors by being thrown into the sea, but the Lord Jesus who certainly is much greater than Jonah, hurled himself to the cross. After living a life of perfection, he offered himself as a perfect sacrifice so that once and for all, death might be conquered and that we might have eternal life. Today, if you're here and you have not yet accepted the Lord as your one true King, if you have not yet bowed the knee to Him, I plead with you, let today be that day. May this be the day when you, like the sailors, realize you've been running from Christ for too long, that you've been pursuing false gods. May you now turn and, like the sailors, fear the Lord and dedicate your life to Him. And this morning, if you have been made a new creation in Christ, may we not only recognize what Jonah experienced, may we not only see that, but may we also look to what Christ has done and that his actions should be what spur us on to obedience. May we not only know that disobedience is an indication of a sinful heart, 
but also if we have professed Christ as our Lord, may we be challenged towards obedience because of the great love that the Father has shown us in sending the Son. May we not only know that sin will bring about consequences and correction which are from the sovereign hand of the Lord, but may we know that all things, including discipline and correction, work together for the good of believers and ultimately for the glory of God. In fact, I would say it's a gracious thing for our sins to be exposed because it's when they are exposed that we can put them to death and more faithfully pursue the Lord. Today, let us leave here encouraged, challenged to live a life characterized by obedience to the Lord. This morning, let us uh, close our time together with a word of prayer, and then I'll, I'll dismiss us afterwards.